Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Tessa Wagert to the podcast today. Tessa is the author of the Shana Merchant novels, which include Death in the Family, The Dead Season, Dead Wind, and The Kind to Kill. A former freelance journalist and digital media strategist, Tessa's work has appeared in Forbes, the Huffington Post, Adweek, and The Economist. She grew up in Quebec and now lives with her husband and children in Connecticut, where she studies martial arts and is co-president and co-founder of Sisters in Crime Connecticut. Welcome to the podcast, Tessa. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm excited to be here today. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. We have lots to talk about. Um, you know, you are the president of a new chapter, and, and so I want to talk about that. But let's start where I always start in this podcast, um, when I'm talking to writers. And when did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? Yeah, my um, journey to get to that point is kind of a, a, a convoluted one, I would say. It's a, it was a twisty, twisty road for me. I wrote a lot of poetry and short stories when I was very, very young and was lucky to have a string of English teachers and professors who encouraged me and helped me find workshops with published authors. And so I, I kind of thought I was going to be on that path and try to write fiction as a career. And then when it came time to choose my major, I just was so intimidated by it. It, that I ended up going into communications and journalism instead. So, mm -hmm. you know, I spent many, many years still writing, but it was more like nonfiction. And so throughout that entire time, I just, I kept reading fiction. I kept returning to the mysteries and thrillers of that genre that I love to read, but I really didn't try my hand at writing a novel until I was in my early 30s, and I had two very young children. I think my son was about nine months at the time. My daughter was two. Not the ideal time to decide you're going to write your first novel, I suppose, <laughs> but I was looking for a creative outlet, and I had a, I was working part-time then from home. I had a little more free time, and so that was when I, I launched into it, and I wrote a thriller, and I ended up also having a short story when um, the Writer's Digest uh, annual fiction awards in the crime fiction category. And that was the moment where I thought to myself, maybe I actually can make this work as a career. You know, I got a small check from that from that award win. Um, I was able to find an agent after about a year or two of querying. And then it was several years before I actually was able to sell a book. But since then, it's just been an absolute whirlwind. I had my debut and the second book in the series come out in 2020, and then two new books in the series come out in 2022. So it was kind of wow. like a hurry up and wait situation and then just hurry up. <laughs> Everything has been moving very fast since then. <laughs> well, we're going to go through the journey a little bit more slowly than that because that is, that is a lot in, in, um, in a short period of time as far as publications go. But the journey there um, takes longer and is, is a lot more work. What, how did you hone your skills as a fiction writer? I found um, a writing group, a critique group. I lived in Chicago at the time. And I also 
found um, a group of writers who met on a regular basis that I was able to kind of mine some information about the publishing industry from and with. And so um, that really helped because then I had access to some people who had been through this process before. Um, and also other writers who were in the same or similar position that I was in, just really looking to, to hone their skills and to perfect the craft. And I mean, really what I did on top of that was write many, many what I refer to to now is my practice books, um, books yeah. that I, you know, went returned to time and time again, rewrote, edited, revised in a number of different ways. A couple of them, I completely changed the genre halfway through, just experimented as much as I could to see, first off, what track I wanted to actually take. And once I realized that mysteries with a kind of a thriller bent were what I was most interested in writing, that helped. But really also to kind of figure out what my voice was like and, and the tone that I was going for and, you know, realized that atmosphere was going to be a big part of my books. And that was part of the reason why I chose The Thousand Islands for the setting in, in the Shana Merchant series. So those mm -hmm. years and all of those practice books really helped me get to that point. Was it always going to be crime fiction for you? It was. The early books that I wrote were thrillers, but they were more bio thrillers, kind of in the vein of Michael Crichton. And there really wasn't much of a market for those types of books. They, they were the books that were popular in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And and they were, and those were the books that got me. One of those books was the book that got me, my agent, who I'm still with today. But after a couple of years of trying to sell those, you know, we had this kind of heart to heart and both agreed that it was time to try something different. And that's when I switched to a more true blue mystery genre. So would you classify your books as traditional mysteries or, or how would you, how would you, how would you describe them? I generally describe them as crime fiction. They are traditional mysteries, but I think the pacing is a little more in line with what you get from a thriller um, mm -hmm. They're definitely police procedurals as well. Shana Merchant is a senior investigator with the New York State Police up in the Thousand Islands. So there is that um, aspect to it. But I generally re refer to them as crime fiction. There's a little something for everyone. You know, lovers of Agatha Christie usually find, you know, some appeal from these books, especially the first one, Death in the Family. I wrote it as kind of an homage to And Then There Were None. So there are a lot of similarities, you know, mm -hmm. echoes to that book. Um, but they all have, I would say, some similarities to Agatha Christie's writings, mainly also because a lot of them are set, much of the series is set in these very small towns, in these very kind of insular communities where you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. There is a you know big cast of suspects. There's a very clever yet flawed detective. But of course, my, my detective is a female detective and she has kind of a, a darker past than perhaps uh, Poirot ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, the way Agatha Christie wrote, we don't know all of his past. I mean, right. he, he talks about it, but that's not as important. But these days, we, we need to know about characters. I mean, character is so important. Right, exactly. And, and with Death and the Family, the first book in the series, I didn't intend for that to be a series kickoff at all. It was going to be a standalone. But fortunately for me, I had worked in quite a lot of Shana's backstory. And when I found a publisher for it who said, you know, we're interested in making it a series. Could you come up with an idea for a second book? Then I, I had this information already about her her life that I could go back to and kind of find the little nuggets that were most interesting to me and then build those up and make that part of the second book and then her bigger story in her character arc as a whole. 
I have so many questions to ask you, but I'm going to continue on this series question because I've been talking to people about writing series in a lot of different contexts lately. Mm -hmm. And when you've got a two, three, four book contract, whatever, you can write a a char- you want to have some sort of arc across those that number of books. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's character development or, or something that that will. You don't want to not solve the big mystery, but you can leave people wondering or or, or excited to see what the next phase of this is going to be. It can be a relationship. It could be a character breakthrough. Whatever. Um, when you when they said to you. Can you make this into a series? Do you have an idea for a second book? Did you change anything in the first book to leave some hooks for the second? Or had you, had you just done that enough already that it, it lent itself to being the first in a series? I didn't have to make as many changes as I thought I would need to make, but I did end up taking the ending, the original ending from the first book, and that became the beginning of the second book. And then I fleshed that out a little bit more as needed, you know, to kick off that story. Because you're absolutely right. Every one of the books has a kind of self-contained mystery involving some member of the community. But there's also this common thread with Shana Merchant and Blake Bram, who is this serial killer that she's been hunting for quite some time, who at one point abducted her and she narrowly escaped him. And over the course of the series, you learn that she has a personal history with him. He's actually, it's now been revealed at this point, and this is not a spoiler for anyone who wants to start at the beginning of the series, but you now know, readers who have stuck with it now know that he is actually a member of her own family. So that has been played a part throughout all of the books as readers find out more about not only the nature of their relationship, but also their personal history, their backstory as a, you know, an individual unit, the friendship that they had when they were very, very young, how he became, you know, this cold hearted killer, whereas she went in the opposite direction and became a, a, you know, lauded, vaunted uh, police investigator. So that is a thread throughout the series. And so in addition to each of those individual mysteries, you get a little more information about about Shana and her life and her past. Now, did you know he was going to be a member of her family in book one? I did not. I knew that there, that's a great question. And I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that before, Julie. Um, I knew that they, they were going to have a very close personal history. At first, I had imagined that he was an old friend of hers when they, a childhood friend from when they were young, living in the same town, growing up in the same town. Um, but when I started writing the second book and I realized that I was going to need to have a lot of material for this backstory. I mean, there was really going to need to be something, um, you know, really kind of like a volatile potential Mm -hmm. relationship there that I could expand on. And it needed to be meaty enough for not only that second book, but however many books followed. And I didn't know at that point how many books there would be in the series. I actually still don't know. Um, (laughs) Talk about keeping us on our toes, right? We series (laughs) writers never really know. But um, but yeah, so I ended up deciding to make him a member of her family. And that, of course, gave me a lot more to work with when it came to building out her story and their backstory, which uh, is a big part of the second book, The Dead Season, and then continues throughout all the way up until The, t- the Kind to Kill. Yeah. And, and the breadcrumbs that you can drop are different as you understand your story more and more. Exactly. And the fact that I don't know how many books there will ultimately be, it actually is kind of enjoyable for me and kind of a fun challenge because I I then have to decide 
you know, how I'm going to wrap up each story in a way, each individual novel in a way that will be satisfying to readers, but still hold just enough back that there could be another story. There could be another book down the line. So it's a pretty tricky balance to try to reach. Um, but I hope that readers feel that I've I've managed to pull it off so far. <laughs> well, and it's hard as a writer, especially if you don't know that the book you were writing was your last, mm -hmm. um, because there are things that as a, as a writer, you want to wrap up. Um, but as you said, you've got to leave some things open just in case. And so, you know, as somebody who has <laughs> gone through this a couple of times, um, it's, it's tricky to sort of balance that between reader satisfaction and also I need more to work on. I don't want to close off all these loops because I need something else. Right. You can't resolve too many of the issues too soon because then there won't feel, I don't think as it won't feel as though there's enough consistency perhaps from one book yeah. to the next. You don't want to be starting completely fresh with, you know, all of Shana's problems have been solved in book three, but now what happens in book four? Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm definitely conscious of that when I start a new book, one of these books in the series, because I do want to draw from things, events that have already occurred to her, you know, situations that she's still going through. She suffers in the very first book, still PTSD from the abduction experience. And so her mental health is a theme all the way throughout. So that help has helped a lot because I can, you know, I can allow readers to see what it's like as she goes through therapy and tries to kind of struggle and grapple with that aspect of her personal life while she's still, you know, tasked with investigating these very complex, sophisticated crimes. Um, so that has helped to keep the series going, I think. But the fact that it's also set in a place like the Thousand Islands, where there's just so much material for me to draw from, so mm -hmm. much interesting history, um, interesting topography with all of these individual islands. It's right on the border of Canada. So, you know, I can have her hopping back and forth, collaborating with the Ontario Provincial Police. There's just no shortage of directions that I can take her cases, right. given that right. setting. And so many different economies up there, right? too. Absolutely. I mean, there's, um, you know, vineyards and there's lakes and there's this and there's that. I mean, it's a really beautiful part of the world. Right, um, right. But that also makes it a lot more fun to, to talk about and to work with. Exactly. Yeah. As you're writing this series, do you have other characters who are starting to show up and maybe don't fit in this series? Or are you thinking about other things? Or, I mean, because... I'm sure that the pandemic didn't help, but two books in one year and then a year <laughs> off and then two books in the next year. That's a lot of writing I, for, for folks who don't know. I mean, that's, that's a lot of writing. So it, you may not have a lot of room in your life to write a, uh, you know, a second book or a second standalone, but, but have you, do you think about that at all? Yes. Um, I do occasionally, have ideas for characters or storylines that won't fit into whatever Shana book I'm working on. Um, and I just put those aside to revisit when I do have time. And fortunately, I have had some time in between books over the last couple of years um, to pursue those other ideas. So I'm, I have a couple of standalones in the works. Um, but something else that I have found, which I didn't necessarily anticipate, was as I'm writing one book to the next, I also tend to go back to the earlier books and and choose characters that we only saw, you know, as secondary mm -hmm. characters or maybe who only served a minor purpose, like providing an alibi. And I'll take those interesting characters, those characters who I see some potential in, 
and build those up and then, you know, have another storyline, a new storyline really revolve around one of those characters. So as readers follow along with the series, they really learn more about this universe of, you know, of of people that are in Shayna's life and, and the community that she is tasked with policing. But now that she also calls home and she's fairly new to this community. So as she's learning how to navigate it uh, and meeting new people, the readers are as well. Well, again, I've I've talked about series a couple of times this week to different people on panel. But um, one thing that that folks should remember if you're thinking about writing a series is... um, to write down the details as you're, <laughs> as you're working, to work on your series Bible from the beginning, because creating it after book two or book three is so much more work. And you do have that tiny character from the first book where you think, oh, she'd be perfect <laughs> to add into this storyline. Or, or she was a fun character. Let me bring her back and give her something to do. Um, but if you don't remember her name or, or, you know, who is she was related to, then it makes it trickier. Um, so, so do you keep a story Bible? How do you keep track of everything? I think that's great advice, and I'm going to do a better job of taking that advice, Julie, because that's, that was my intention going into this once I realized it was going to be a series, but I am just so impatient, and I just want to get to the writing pro- like the writing part of it because that's what's m- most fun for me, and so I, I waste so much time going back to those early manuscripts and then, you know, retroactively building out those character traits and having this list. I mean, the timelines are always the, the biggest issue for me, and yeah. so- Finally, by about book three, I figured out that I really need to keep track of not only what's happening in terms of timeline in the book that I'm I'm currently working on, but also you know when that particular event from book two occurred and and right. you know in relation to what's happening now and what was happening in Shana's life and and the sheriff's life at that point and it does make it so much easier to keep track of all of that and and do a good job of being organized. Well, and it's the timeline for the series is so important um, for just for asides, you know, well, three months ago, X, Y, or Z happened because you're writing them a year apart, but people are reading them back to back to back. And so they'll pick up on these little mistakes or these, these missteps and, um, and let you know about them, which is also tricky. Yeah, that's um, very true. Yeah. They can't readers yeah. will catch whatever mistakes you make. And yeah. so it's always better to try to avoid that. And with this series, it's, it wasn't really intentional, but it's been interesting. Someone just pointed this out to me, uh, last night at a virtual event that I did, and it, it kind of didn't—I didn't even realize it was the case. But um, the first, the first book takes place in 2018, but then the next, you know, four the, up until this fourth book, that all occurs over two years, and so readers who come to it you know, in 2020, let's say, readers who discovered the series in 2020, they're kind of following along with Shana in real time. And anyone too who who discovers it now, you know, if you read the books over, let's say the course of two years, you're kind of right there in step with her. So that's kind of interesting to be able to follow along and and know exactly what's happening in her life. And there isn't much of a break in between each of the books, which, mm-hmm. you know, I feel a little bad for her because she never really gets any time off. She's thrown from one, you know, disastrous case to the next and (laughs) one high profile situation to the next with very little downtime in between. But hopefully that makes it more exciting for the readers, you know, and and keeps them keeps them engaged with the series. 
Well, I also think it's interesting that you have her dealing with all of the trauma of what she deals with um, as part of her character arc. I, I, you know, not all books do that, but I think more and more books are sort of saying, you know, you couldn't go through this and not have it impact you. Mm -hmm. And it's okay that it impacts you or we, or she's going to need a break at some point, or she's going to, you know, somebody else is going to have to help her do whatever, because um, nobody could go through that in two years. And, you know, still be functioning. Right. She may even get suspended. Just saying she may be on probation. Yeah. It may have happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, because no. I mean, it's a, it's, it does take an emotional toll going through something like that. And that was definitely a conscious decision when I, when I wrote Death in the Family, the first book, because I did want to create a, a, a female detective who was definitely um, very competent, um, was able to kind of suss out uh, aspects of people's character in a, in a way and in an, an effective way that others maybe could not see things that others could not. But I also wanted her to be somewhat vulnerable and nuanced. And I, I thought, you know, one of the, the best ways to do that is to give her these um, emotional, psychological uh, challenges that she's trying to overcome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that ended up being a quite a big part of the series. Um, and yes, it's, it hasn't been easy for her. So a therapist turns up at some point and she has a relationship with a therapist, but mm -hmm. I mean, these books, they kind of teeter between mysteries, thrillers, and psychological thrillers, I would say. So there is psychology does play a very big part, um, especially in a few of them. The second one, the dead season, that's very much the case um, because you're, you're learning, you know, you're seeing th things through Shana's eyes, but you're also learning what it might be like for an investigator in this situation. And I do want it to, even though of course it's, it's crime fiction and some of the cases may seem, you know, I don't want to say far-fetched, but certainly not something that you would encounter in a small community like the Thousand Islands, at least so far. Uh, and hopefully that continues to be the case. But for her, you know, for her to be experiencing these these cases while still dealing with this trauma, um, I did want that to feel uh, like there was a challenge for her because, of course, that then helps me to up the tension and raise the stakes. And it's difficult for her to to do her job when she's struggling with all of these other um, challenges as well. Yeah. And I, I would imagine also connections, family connections and just dealing with them and, and looking at her life through a different lens, mm -hmm. um, that can take a toll too. Like what I thought was true may not be true. <laughs> um, so how do I, how does that impact me as a person? Right. Um, and as an investigator, because so many investigators do need to be fairly sure of themselves in order to do their jobs. I mean, they or of right and wrong or of, you know, of their sense of justice. And, and when that gets shaken, that's an interesting character journey as well. Right. And there's a lot to unpack there, too, with even her relationship with her colleagues, because do they trust her? Do they think that she's mm -hmm. capable of doing this work, this work where you really need to be on your toes because you're not only out there, you know, keeping the community safe and protecting yourself, but you also need to, to some extent, protect your, your colleagues. So yeah, with her partner, Tim Wellington, that comes into play as well. Now, did you, how did you do research on her and her experience? Did you, do you have family members who are working law enforcement or did you make 
did you make it up out of whole cloth or, or um, how did you, how did you approach that? I, um, once I realized that these, this book, Death in the Family, when I first started writing that one, that that was going to be a police procedural and it occurred to me that I really needed to figure out what I was doing in terms of the police procedure, because, I mean, of course, you can do a lot of research, but in a community like the Thousand Islands, where I had a crime occurring on an island very close to the border, I didn't have the first idea who would respond in a case like that. Would it right. be the Coast Guard? Would it be the village police? Would it be the New York State Police? Would it be the Ontario Provincial Police? So there was a lot of research that I had to do because I did want to get that as accurate as possible. And I was very very lucky early on when I was still drafting that first book to connect with the real live sheriff of Jefferson County, who is recently retired, but was the sheriff for a couple of decades. And prior to that was a senior investigator herself. So she was able to tell me not only from the sheriff's point of view, you know, how, um, how a case might pan out and the order of events for things with the investigation, but also she was able to to help me get into Shana's mindset a little bit more. Um, And that sheriff, her name is Colleen O'Neill, and she actually was the first elected female sheriff of New York State. So as I was writing the book, when I discovered this about her and thought that her professional background was so fascinating, I actually gave some of those, you know, professional attributes to the sheriff character in the book. And so that was kind of fun because then I got to go back to Colleen and say, here's the here's the book. Here's the finished product. You know, you might see some similarities between Sheriff Maureen McIntyre and your your own background. And fortunately for me, she got a kick out of it and thought that it was great and and wanted to continue to help me with it. So she has been my go to for all of that. Yeah. And over the years, I've, I've reached out to a couple of other BCI Bureau of Criminal Investigation investigators as well if I needed, you know, some particular subject matter expertise. But really, I, she's my primary um, subject matter expert. People are very generous when you ask questions. And, and as long as, you know, you're showing respect or, or, you know, you, you, for their time or, you, you know, you don't put expectations on what they can, um, they can show you at a moment's notice. It's, um, it's, it's every time I've had a question, uh, you know, and I've had to ask somebody some research and they've been incredibly generous with their time and their knowledge. Yeah. That has been my experience too. I have, I can't think of one situation where I approached someone and they weren't interested in helping out. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think a lot of people just really, are excited about not only the idea of helping to shape the novel and get it to be, you know, as accurate as it could be, but also then to be mentioned in the acknowledgements, people get a real kick out of that. So definitely mm-hmm. make sure if you're speaking with people, experts who are giving you advice, I would say to writers, definitely make sure to keep a list. I always keep a list as I'm drafting, yeah. as I'm writing the novel of people I want to make sure to include in the acknowledgements that I don't want to leave out. Absolutely. And if you're writing in Scrivener, make it a scene card. If you're writing in Word, you know, make it the last scene. But um, keeping that running list, especially if the novel takes you a while mm-hmm. um, to write, it's a, it's quite the list. You mentioned early on that you had written, been writing nonfiction. And I, I led some of, uh, I read some of the credits of some of the periodicals that you've written for. Um, I've spoken to a few people who have been nonfiction writers of one sort or another, journalists and, and other folks. Did you have to unlearn some things, um, uh, to write fiction that you'd learned as, as, uh, you know, in your writing nonfiction? That's a great question. Um, 
One thing I will, I mean, I did, I would say if there was anything that I had to unlearn, it's that, and this is one of the reasons actually why I ended up switching to fiction. There is somewhat of a formula to writing journalists, journalistic pieces, especially the type of stories that I was writing. I was covering digital marketing and technology. I was writing a lot of blog posts, um, white papers, and there is somewhat of a formula to those. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I would get into this groove and this routine of just sticking to that formula. And then when I made the switch to fiction, I had to make a conscious decision and effort to not do that because that is the, that's a surefire blueprint for, you know, creating a predictable mystery novel, right? (laughs) You don't want people to be able to follow along and see, you know, two steps ahead of where, where your, your character and your sleuth or your investigator actually is. So I would say I did have to unlearn that, but, um, but that said, there was, I think an advantage to coming to fiction having first worked as a journalist, just because I already had a lot of experience with research, a lot of experience with conducting interviews. But more than that, I knew how to sit down and just get it done. You know, I had deadlines, much more timely, urgent deadlines than the deadlines that I'm dealing with now, you know, very little time in which to produce these pieces. So I do feel like it just taught me to write more quickly and also maybe taught me not to overthink things and be too precious with my words because I just one way or another had to get that story to my editor. So I do find that that has helped me. Um, so anyone who has that kind of background or even, you know, a background in copywriting or or technical writing or anything like that, writing is writing, I feel in a way. So, I mean, it's still, you know, even if it's not fiction, it's still experience mm-hmm. getting those words down on the page and, and learning to navigate the language and, and just, um, being able to produce just even the word count that you need to produce, because that's something that a lot of people get hung up on, I feel, right, is just not being able to meet those word counts, just feeling like paralyzed that they can't keep writing. I think that's something I certainly have been there myself (laughs) on occasion, but having that background helps. What's your process like for writing a book? I um, do a very minimal amount of outlining At the beginning, I usually write just about a six to 10 page outline hitting on the major um, action, you know, points from each plot points in each chapter. And then I start because, again, I tend to be a little impatient and I'm just mostly interested in getting going with the writing. And so what ends up happening is I have become kind of a hybrid pantser plotter, Um, you know, that initial outline will get me usually two thirds of the way through the book. And then I typically just throw all of that to the wind and head off in a different direction based on what I've (laughs) discovered along the way. And, and I mean, I often do come up with completely new subplots that I didn't see coming or build out characters that I didn't expect to be so interesting that, you know, now I don't want them to just be a, a minor character. I would like to build them up in some way. So by the time I reach the end of the first draft, I have to go back and completely rewrite the synopsis, you know, whatever I, it was that I showed to my editor and my agent at the very beginning, because it definitely does change. Um, but that's, you know, that's my process that I found has worked quite well. And do you write in word or or how do you, how do you, draft your novels? I'm pretty old school. I, not a, not so old school that I write longhand, but I do write in word. Um, and then, you know, 
go back and edit as I go. And that's something that I think um, is also a holdover from my days as a journalist is, you know, because I didn't have much time to be working on these stories, I would have to edit as I went. So that's one of the biggest kind of challenges and obstacles really for me with my process is that I can't get too hung up because I'll just polish that first chapter forever and never move on. So I have to, you know, I allow myself to edit as I go because I just it, it kind of helps me stay on track and feel like I'm what I have is a little bit more fully formed than maybe just a very, very messy first draft might be. Um, but I have to force myself sometimes to move forward and not get too stuck on some of the the finer points because there's always time to refine and polish down the line. What do you wish you'd known when you started this whole novel writing journey um, that you know now? I would say, um, thinking back to before I was published, when I still knew very little about what it was like actually, you know, being a part of this industry, um, I think I expected to have a little bit more control over the process, right? I mean, you see novelists in movies, and they definitely seem to hold all the cards, and they're shouting orders at their editor and at their agent. And not that I plan to do that, but I definitely thought that I would have, you know, more control over things like the cover and the back copy and, you know, even things like title choices. And so um, a, a word of advice that I would give to to writers and authors who are at the beginning of this process and journey debuts, let's say, is to just be nimble and know that everyone is on the same team and everyone is working together. Um, and, you know, I mean, of course, you can push back a little if you feel really strongly about something at the beginning, I, th- I I was a little afraid to ask too many questions. I just didn't want to be a bother to anyone. And I've since learned that because we all are part of the same team, it's actually a good thing to ask questions. And we're, we, you know, well within our rights and entitled to ask, you know, do you have a, a paperback pub date yet, for example, or, or has that mm-hmm. not been finalized? Because sometimes things you know, move very quickly. And occasionally, maybe the author isn't the first to know. So, um, so yeah, I would say I've learned to be a little bit more flexible, and also to um, advocate for myself a bit more. And what's the what's the worst piece of writing advice you ever got? (laughs) Um, Someone once told me, to abandon something if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work and you're not getting anywhere, just start fresh. And I do think there is some, um, you know, merit to that advice, but I have found that completely, to me, abandoning it meant deleting it. And I have found that just deleting it and starting fresh has not been good for me. If I hold on to things, maybe maybe that idea or those first couple of chapters aren't right for this particular book that I'm working on, but they might be right for something else or going back to revisit them in a year or two might spark a whole other idea for a whole new novel. So I do, if something really feels like it's not working, I do start fresh, but I don't delete everything and get rid of it and you know put it out of my mind forever. I definitely have it in a file somewhere and return to it from time to time. And you mentioned early on that you have um, almost practice novels or novels that you worked on for years. Finishing, I think, is something that a lot of people don't do. They will abandon in the middle because it's not working. But there are people who have written 
30 books and it doesn't work in the middle as you're <laughs> writing. And, you know, this is, this is part of the process. Right. So you do want to finish, but do you ever think about going back to those early books and say, I love this idea. And now I know what, how to, how to do it. I do. I did that actually very recently. Last fall, I went back to a book I had written in 2016 that went out on sub and for one reason or another wasn't picked up, but I held onto it and I still loved the, the you know, the essence of it and the, the, the concept of it. But I went back to it and I rewrote it as more, it kind of was a near future techno thriller and I rewrote it as more of a traditional mystery still with the technology mm -hmm. bent to it um, but it has kind of more of a, a noir vibe to it now so that's getting ready to go out on submission which is exciting and I'm really glad that I held on to that because yeah when I found myself in between projects and I had a little bit of time before I needed to start working on the next book that was under contract and I and I you know wanted a challenge, I guess, and wanted to do something a little bit different because I knew I would be spending, you know, many, many months returning to Shana. Um, I picked it up and I was happy to see that there was a lot that I could salvage there. Well, and I think that's such a great thing for people to hear is that you can still love what you wrote. You can still love the genre you wrote in and how you wrote it. So, but rewriting it so that it is more marketable <laughs> or so that it's, it's in a, it, you know, it's slightly different genre, um, isn't selling out. It's just being pragmatic, um, as far as trying to get it out there. Exactly. I mean, the market changes all the time. Yeah. So it's important to stay on top of what new books are coming out, what books are selling, um, and trends. And not to say that it's a good idea to chase a trend, but certainly, you know, if it seems as though something, some particular genre, some subgenre is trending downward, that might be the moment to look at what you're currently working on and say, well, right. could I, you know, is there a slightly different take on it that might help me? Because when it hits the market or it's out on sub a year or two from now or whatever it may be, you know, you want to know that there's going to be interest in it. Yeah. And as you said, it's very hard to predict, but it's it's paying attention to what's getting published and and what people are buying and who what what publishers are out there. I mean, it's a really wonderful time, I think, to be a writer, which does make it easier. But it's uh, there's so many different types of opportunities for writers to to write hybrids and to write for different size presses and and you know to indie publish to do a whole bunch of things. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things, Tessa, that you've done recently um, is you have co-founded the Connecticut chapter of Sisters in Crime. Yes. So um, can you talk about that and what, what this organization has meant to you in your writing um, career? Because, you know, you're a busy person and adding that to your plate um, isn't a small thing. So uh, <laughs> why, why were you willing to do that? Yeah, well, you know, Sisters in Crime had been a part of my life for many, many years. I have been a member of the New England chapter and the New York chapter for a long, long time um, and have met so many, so many people that not only uh, have helped because I could kind of collaborate and commiserate with them to some extent, you know, just people, other people who were living that same experience that I was mm -hmm. living, but also to see 
you know, how everybody's path to publishing can be so different. So it's just, it's kind of like this great coming together of different, um, different people with their different experiences. And I have learned so much from just being a part of these communities. And then of course, there's all, there are all of the other additional benefits, like perfecting your craft and working on, you know, various aspects of your writing and all of that. But um, the opportunity came along to found uh, or to be involved in a Connecticut chapter because there was not a, a Connecticut chapter. And I thought that, you know, I might as well throw my hat into the ring. So Elise Hart Kipnis, um, another author who has who's in Connecticut and has her debut coming up this August, actually, and I decided that we were going to um, lead the chapter, co-found the chapter. We have an incredible team of volunteers now and about, oh, I think we're up to about 60 or so members, between 50 and 60 members. And we only just really formed in April of 2022. So it's been growing really fast, which has been so satisfying because to me, it means that there was a need for a chapter in Connecticut. I mean, we're still very spread out. Part of the reason why I wanted to be involved was because it was difficult for me to get to some of the New England and New York meetings. But, you know, if we could have a Connecticut chapter with some meetings that maybe were a little bit closer for people who are within the state, um, that's nice to be able to do things in person from time to time as well. So it's been wonderful and it's such a part of my life and my daily routine now. And I'm, I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to be a part of it. You really do have a great board and group of volunteers who are helping support the, the chapter as well, which is great. Yeah. yeah. So what are you looking forward to? What's next for you as far as uh, writing and what challenges have you set for yourself as, as we're talking early in 2023? So just to give people a time mark where everything seems possible. So right. <laughs> don't hold us to any of this, but... <laughs> exactly. Who knows how I'll feel in a month or two, but no, but I do have some plans, you know, for 2023. I'm, I'm finishing up the fifth book in the Shana series now. So that will be out later this year, most likely December of 2023. Um, and then one of my goals has been to write more this year, write more books. You know, I had been writing about a book of a book a year, book and a half a year. I'm trying to get it up to two books a year, if I can even get it to two and a half books a year, where of course, you know, some of that will just be kind of draft material um, because I have various other things going on and I don't want to spread myself too, too thin. But um, but that's my goal. So I have the standalone that's going to be going out on submission. And I have another standalone that I'm about halfway done writing that I'm going to revisit and see if I can finish that up as well. And then we'll just see where things go from there. I'm just kind of open to opportunities. I mean, I think that's a good takeaway for people, too, who are newer to this is just to be open to whatever may come. I mean, you you might you know, I think it's easy to get um, to have an idea of what you want your your ideal publishing experience to be like. And I honestly don't know anyone whose publishing experience has been. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like when you meet someone who's going who's about to go into labor. And they, this was certainly my experience. And they say, here's what I want my ideal labor experience to be like. And then, you know, half the time it's completely thrown out the window because of various situations that you weren't anticipating. So I think think just be open to whatever and whatever seems like the best course of action. And, you know, a lot of opportunities are likely to come to you that way. And are you writing in the same genre, the traditional thriller, 
you know, that sort of world um, for all of these books? Or are you writing in a different genre or subgenre? I am sticking to crime fiction for now. Um, I may someday revisit those bio thrillers again, if it seems like there's a market for them um, sometime down the line. But for now, I'm sticking with police procedurals, mysteries, you know, traditional mysteries, noir mysteries, thrillers, psychological thrillers, everything kind of within that vein. And do you find as a writer, when you write dark, does that have an effect on you as a, you know, as a person? Do you have to shake it off before you go and, you know, have dinner with your family or, <laughs> or, or do some, you know, I mean, does it, does it affect you um, writing dark? You know, I think it does to some extent, but I'm actually more affected by reading very dark books. And I mm. think that maybe because when I'm writing dark, I still know that I have control over whatever I'm writing. So I can make sure that it doesn't get too dark to where I'm really uncomfortable. And these books are crime novels, but they're not graphically violent by any means. Right. So I, you know, that's a conscious choice too, where I kind of hold back on that a little, cause that's something that I sometimes am un uncomfortable with. So yeah, it's, it's a little harder for me to be reading the super dark stuff, especially before bed. And then I do really have to shake it off and maybe grab a cozy or a rom-com or something like that <laughs> <laughs> to be able to get to sleep that night. Um, yeah. but when I'm writing, I, I tend to rein it in a little bit more. And so I've been asked if I would ever write something from the point of view of Blake Graham, the serial killer who plays such a big part in these novels that I don't know that I could do because I just feel like that would be too difficult to get into such a dark mind for, you know, the amount of time that I would need to be lingering mm -hmm. there while working on it. So I think I'll stick with Shana for now. And you said that you, uh, it started in 2018 and you're four books in and it's been about two years. Yes. Are you dealing with COVID at all? Are you dealing with the pandemic at all? Or are you skipping that? Not so far. The new book that I'm working on occurs right before the pandemic, the fall before the pandemic. So if there's a sixth book, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, I, I was a bit intimidated by the idea of tackling the pandemic, to be honest with you, um, you know, thinking about this timeline and where things may go in the future with the series. But I have since read some books that have done it so beautifully that I don't feel quite so intimidated anymore. So um, 56 Days by Catherine Ryan Howard is one of them. That was fantastic. And The Disinvited Guest by Carol Goodman, which is not exactly based on our pandemic, but a pandemic did a wonderful job as well. So I do feel like if I need to go there because it's what the story requires, you know, and the timeline would be best served that way, then I think I, I would be okay with trying to tackle it. I would imagine there are a lot of people writing series who are who are thinking about this. Yeah. You know, and it's certainly if you're writing cozy, you can skip it. I mean, you you know, as a matter of fact, your readers may want you to skip it. But if you're writing um, more traditional crime novels, then it's the author needs to make a choice. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation about uh, writing and processing and um, process and publishing and everything else. Um, what what would be your favorite thing to leave people with as far as as, you know, going for it and and not not giving up as as they're trying to get those novels written and get them out? 
Well, since we're here on behalf of Sisters in Crime, and since we touched on this already, I'll say it's so important to find a community of people who are are struggling with things and experiencing some of these same things the way that you are and having amazing successes too. So um, that's something that I really wish that I had known beforehand. I feel like I could have really put myself out there more before I debuted. And now I'm playing catch up a little bit, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, I've met so many amazing writers by getting involved, getting more involved with Sisters in Crime and being a part of the community that that's something that, you know, you it's such a unique business and industry. And I think it's very difficult to understand what it's like unless you're actually living it. So why not make friends with people who are actually living it, who can give you advice mm-hmm. and tell you, you know, I went through that exact same situation. Here's what I would recommend or no, that's completely normal. Don't worry about it. You know, whatever it is, because we are writers and we tend to often many of us be in our heads about things and, you know, worry about things and build them up to be something maybe bigger than they need to be. So to have people to bounce ideas off of and again, collaborate with is such a gift, I think. And who take you seriously as a writer. Exactly. I think that that's, that's one of the great gifts of being a member of Sisters in Crime. Any writing organization, but Sisters in Crime, it doesn't matter where you are in your writing journey. You can just have thought, you know, gosh, I'd love to write a book. Um, and people are going to take you seriously when you say that out loud. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I Don't wait. Until um, you have a contract to join an organization like Sisters in Crime or Sisters in Crime, join it the minute you think you might want to, because there's so much to learn <laughs> about the about writing, but also about publishing, and they're two different things. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And and be in the room with people when you can, even if it's on Zoom. Like, get to know people. It's it's makes all the difference. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much, Julie. And thanks for everyone for tuning in. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.